Now, happy Father's Day to all the dads in the room. I mean, nothing says happy Father's Day like a good bad jokes, dad jokes uh, video. But if your dad, hope you got a special day in front of you that maybe involves a fishing pole, a steak, or taking a nap or something. But uh, no matter what, we're, we're glad you're here with us today. Uh, my name is Paul. I'm the lead pastor here at Genesis. I'm a dad as well, and uh, just excited to be with you and to share with you today. And before I start, I want to just kind of let you know what's up in my life these next uh, few weeks. Um, I'm going to be preaching at our Carmel campus next Sunday, and then I know some of you heard this, but I'm going to be taking uh, some vacation time with a little extended time in July, and uh, we get to do some fun things as a family. We're going to take vacation together. I'm going to, in July, go to high school cross-country camp with my son, Luke. Uh, Jenny and I celebrate 25 years of marriage in July, and so we're going to get a little time away and uh, looking forward to that, but uh, uh, just a little extended time. Again, just in the month of July, I am coming back. I'm coming back. August the 1st, and uh, speaking of anniversaries, it'll be 15 years of Genesis for me in August, and then this is also the 20-year uh, anniversary of Genesis Church, and so right now we're planning a special service for Labor Day weekend, all right, so keep Sunday Labor Day weekend in mind. We'll have more details uh, to come about that, so looking forward to celebrating all these things. I just want to say thank you uh, for that opportunity that I have to get a little extra time, and uh, we got a great staff. we got a great elder team, and so I'm so thankful for their leadership and just the ability to uh, take a couple of extra weeks this summer. Looking forward to that. And uh, we got a good summer plan, too. And here in July, we've got a great preaching schedule. You're going to get to hear from some different people. And so all of that's coming up over the next few weeks, but I just wanted to make sure that you all were aware of that, okay? Let's, uh, let's pray as we get started today. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great love and for Christ our Savior and for the life and the hope that we have through him. Uh, thanks for this church family and for, man, thinking about 20 years uh, of Genesis Church and helping people find their way back to God. Lord, we thank you for your work, for your faithfulness, and for your provision for all these years. I know I am looking forward to what's to come and into the future of this church, and we are trusting you, Lord, uh, for even so much more. Thanks for dads uh, here today uh, on this Father's Day weekend, and just pray for great joy and blessing in their hearts um, and maybe just something special uh, in their life today. Lord, we, we also want to recognize that maybe for some, uh, for some men here today, for some families, for some dads, there's some pain associated with a day like today. Uh, you are the God of all comfort. You're a God of compassion. You're a great shepherd to us, and you lead us through the ups and downs of life, the valleys, and all of the mountaintops. And so we trust you. Our, our faith and our hope is in you. And um, I pray, Father, that as we continue in our service today, you continue to lead us and guide us, and that through your Holy Spirit, you would speak to our hearts and minds uh, today as we study your word. And so speak through me, uh, do what only you can do, and uh, just take this time in, in all of our lives as we, we focus our attention on you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, if you've got a Bible with you today, I want to invite you to take it and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's in the Old Testament, about midway through the Old Testament, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17. I, I was wasting some time flipping through uh, different TV channels the other evening because that's just what you do once in a while, right? I got drawn into a show about the country of Norway on the PBS channel. And I, I love to travel, and I've never been to Norway before, but I want to go there now for sure, especially after seeing 
seeing images of the Norwegian fjords, as can be seen here on the screen, and uh, they are absolutely amazing. And, you know, pictures will do what they can uh, for sure. Now, granted, it's no White River flowing through Hamilton County. I mean, it's a close second to that, uh, but still pretty amazing in of itself. And as I was watching this program, the panoramic views of the fjords quickly shifted to a video of a woman climbing to the top of one of these majestic cliffs. And as she climbed, she talked about why she loves being outdoors and why she loves this particular part of Norway. And she eventually made it to the top of one of these cliffs. And once again, the viewer was invited to take in all of the sights from her eyes. And I imagine being there in her place when all of a sudden, without any warning whatsoever, she jumped. All right, just like can be seen here in this video, they're what are called base jumpers. What's a base jumper? A lunatic to begin with. Uh, but a base jumper are those that will free fall from these cliffs and travel as fast as you possibly can to the ground, and then you pull that parachute at the last moment, right? The goal is to land safely. I say again, the goal is to land safely in it. Now, there's not a lot of base jumping going on around central Indiana these days that I'm aware of, but I want to know this. How many of you, if you knew that nothing would go wrong, how many of you would do it? Get your hand up in the air if you do it. All right, we got a good crowd of people, those of you that are crazy, all right, that would be willing to dare such a thing. There's no way I would do anything like this. There's no way you would get me close to the edge of the cliff, let alone to potentially jump from it. But something you may or may not find surprising about me, I, I've struggled with things like courage and fear uh, all throughout my life. Uh, take, for example, thunderstorms. I was terrified of thunderstorms as a kid. Now I'm just fascinated by them. Snakes and spiders. I didn't love them when I was young. I still don't love them today. But as the dad writes, sometimes I got to grab the wad of paper towel and I got to go fetch the, uh, the spider out of the basement girls, all right, scared me to death as a teenager. Fun fact, I didn't even ask Jenny out in person. I asked her out over email, and it worked, right? It, it worked, but uh, kind of reminds me of this pic of this survey that a young kid filled out where he wrote, who's your hero, dad? Why do you consider this person your hero? He is brave. Is there anything your hero is frightened of? Mom, yes, he's frightened of mom, right? Some things never change. Um, how about exotic foods, right? I, I want to know what I'm eating. I'll, I'll eat a number of different things, but if I don't know what it is, I've never heard of it, I'm not interested. Like I went on a mission trip to Kazakhstan 20 years ago, and I had read somewhere that if you're the special guest at a traditional meal, that meal is typically horse's head, all right, I prayed all the way over and all the way back from Kazakhstan that I would not be the special guest at any particular meal, and God answered that prayer, thankfully. But, uh, but seriously, on, on a serious note, I, I struggle with fear and courage. You know, when I think about who I am and how I'm wired and how I think about things, like take, for example, I, I'm afraid of the unknown. Uh, I don't necessarily love uncertainty. Um, I'm, I'm afraid of things like pain and suffering and death. I'd rather not have to deal with any of those. I don't want to do hard things. I don't like conflict uh, necessarily. I'm, uh, I, I would say that I'm afraid of disappointing people. 
Uh, I'd even add to it like being a, a pastor in kind of this crazy, chaotic, changing world of ours scares me at times. And maybe you can relate in your own way, maybe something similar. But I'd say for most of us, fear is a natural, normal, everyday part of life. Martin Luther King Jr. said this about fear and courage. He said this, I, I learned that courage was not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. The brave man is not he who does not feel afraid. <clears throat> but he who is able to conquer, <coughs> excuse me, that fear. So fear is something we all go through. Courage, then, is our ability to function in spite of those fears, to keep living even when we can't see everything that's happening. And so most importantly, then, as Christians, courage is an essential part of faith. And faith comes from trusting God. It's believing that he can help and believing that he can give us greater faith to trust him no matter what's going on in our lives. And so we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 17 today. We're in the third week of this series called Sticky Stories. Uh, we're looking at Old Testament stories all summer long. Now, why are they sticky? Well, if you grew up around church, if you went to something like Sunday school or maybe VBS, chances are you studied these stories, you remember these stories, the basic lessons of these stories tend to stick with us. We've uh, got some fun elements uh, in this series. Maybe you've seen these already, kind of these stickers that illustrate the different stories that we're teaching through. There's a table full of these out in the lobby. You might grab one of these on the way out. Maybe you put it in your journal or put it on a water bottle uh, or something. But 1 Samuel chapter 17, the story, if you haven't figured it out already, David and Goliath. It's one of the most famous stories on fear and courage in the world. But maybe, here's what I want to do, maybe a fresh take on this story today. Uh, and a lesson, really, when you think about it, of how we read the Bible, the application we draw from it. And so hang with me. Uh, I'll explain what I mean more about that in just a few minutes, but 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 1, we're looking at one of the most famous battles in all of Scripture, not necessarily against armies, though. These are two individuals, one giant, one teenage boy. Let's pick it up. 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Socha in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephesdamim and between Socha and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. Now, quick lesson about warfare in the ancient world. Warfare today is often fought from a distance, right? It's fought with things like drones and missiles and jets. Back then, it was fought with your arms. You fought within an arm's length. You could smell the breath of your opponent. Uh, uh, you, you, you saw the fear and the savagery in the eyes of your enemies. Few died instantly in a world full of dull swords and, and wooden clubs. That means that you could be wounded and suffer for hours. And even if you could stop the bleeding, most died from infection later on. If you were wounded critically, you were often left on the battlefield where you were potentially eaten by birds and other creatures until you finally died. The Israelites were at war with the Philistines 
always at war with the Philistines, and the Philistines controlled most of the coastal plains of what is known as Israel today. And you can see Philistia demonstrated from the map here. If you find Jerusalem uh, in the center, Philistia down to the, the southwest and along the Mediterranean Sea, that's where Philistia was located in 1 Samuel. Uh, but like most enemies of Israel, the Philistines wanted more territory. And so on this occasion, they are marching northeast, advancing towards the heart of Israel. And the place of confrontation that we read is the Valley of Elah. And I got a chance to go to the Valley of Elah about seven years ago. Here's what the valley looks like today. And with this picture, with this valley in mind, consider these words, verses 3 and 4. The Philistines occupied one hill, we read, the Israelites another, with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. Translated, the Philistines had a stud, all right? They had a Nikola Jokic of their own. The text says that he was six cubits in a span. Now, Bible scholars debate the conversion in today's numbers. Some scholars say six feet nine. Others say nine feet six. Either way, in a day and age when the average height for a man was five feet tall, Goliath was a beast of a man. He was a giant. Verse 5, he had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung uh, on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Now, like here, the Hebrew translation says that he wore a coat of scales. And some scholars note that this Hebrew word for scales is very similar to a snake-like Hebrew word. Now, that seems right because when I think of scales, I think of snakes. And so picture, if you would, Goliath as this giant snake, this intimidating giant. And his armor, as verses 5 through 7 says, weighed 500 shekels, which converts to about 125 pounds. So imagine the weight of that on your body. He had a spear with an iron point alone that weighed 15 pounds. And he's got a shield bearer who would go out in front of him to provide an added layer of protection. Sounds pretty intimidating to me. Notice what Goliath was up to. Verse 8, Goliath would stand and shout to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become subjects and serve us. Now, because warfare, all-out warfare, was absolutely devastating, there was an alternative fighting tactic in the ancient world that minimized human loss. They called it representative warfare, which means that each side would opt for a 1v1 sort of battle, all right? They would each choose a single representative. The two would throw down whoever won his army won, whoever lost their army was the loser. And so those were the agreed upon terms here in the Valley of Elah. You choose your best, we'll choose our best. One big problem for Israel though, the Philistines have Goliath and the Israelites have no one. Verse 11, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul, King Saul, and all the Israelites were dismayed 
and terrified. Now, here's the irony. The irony was that Saul was Israel's king. And if you read a little bit of the backstory here, the irony increases in that he was their leader. He was their so-called giant. But the funny thing is that like the rest of Israel, Saul lacked courage too. And so Israel's got this big problem. The Philistines are advancing and they have a giant and Israel has nobody to match him. But meanwhile, 10 or 15 miles away lived a teenage boy named David. And as you can see from the map here, if you find the Valley of Elah in the center and trace the green line, David was from a place you've probably heard of before, a place called Bethlehem. And he was too young to be in the army, but his brothers were there fighting this battle and David's father was concerned about the battle because he had sons there, but he was also concerned that Bethlehem laid in the potential path of the Philistines' destructive path. And so if the Philistines broke through at Elah, some speculate that Bethlehem could come next. And so look what Jesse, the father of David, does. And again, his boys are off at battle, verse 17 it says, now Jesse said to his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain, these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance for them. So Jesse puts together this charcuterie board for David to basically take off to the battlefield. Verse 20, it says, early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd. See, David was a shepherd boy, loaded up and set out as Jesse directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle position, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. I just try to imagine putting myself in David's shoes. He's this young teenage boy. He shows up to the valley of Elah. There are two great armies located there. Like, imagine coming upon this scene and seeing this site for yourself. Verse 22, David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. And so David's talking with his brothers, talking with these other men from the Israelite army when all of a sudden Goliath steps out. Verse 24 says that everyone starts running, everyone except for David. This, this teenage boy stands there in the middle of the chaos, confused. He's not running like everyone else. And then David asks, why is everyone running? And just simply reminds them, like, like we're from Israel. Like, we, we represent the true and the living God. Like, why are you afraid? Why are you running? And then he runs into some, a confrontation of his own. Verse 28, when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here, David? And whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch this battle. In life like that at times, in some of the relationships that you may or may not have, like if you've got good people in your life, you know the value of having good people and how wonderful it is to have people that encourage you and love you and stand by you no matter what you're going through. At the same time, we know, all know how defeating, how life-sucking, critical, cynical, negative people can be. Like they, they just suck all of the life and the faith out of you at times. 
In the midst of it all, David learns that no one's willing to fight Goliath, and so he volunteers. And somehow word gets to King Saul, and I think he was excited at first to hear that there was a volunteer, but then he laid his eyes on David, a shepherd boy carrying a sling. Verse 33, Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he's been a warrior from from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. Here's a little clue what's going on in David's life here. Verse 37, the Lord. Again, this is the one I'm leaning on. This is where my courage comes from. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. The Lord will rescue me, David says, from the hand of this Philistine. And so Saul said to David, we'll go and the Lord be with you. And don't confuse Saul's uh, words with a sudden burst of faith in this moment and, and confidence. This is just yet another jab at David and his faith in God. Verse 38, then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. He said, I can't go into these or wear with these. I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand. David chose five smooth stones from the stream. He put them in the pouch of a shepherd's bag and his sling in his hand. He approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept closer, coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was a little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. And now I want you to pay close attention to these last words. And If you've got your own Bible, you might underline some of these phrases there as they illuminate from the page. Because in verse 45, David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. He says, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel and all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves but what for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. There are so many sticky lessons, if you would, in those last words. Maybe spend some time with those words on your own even this week and just kind of think for yourself, what do these mean for David? What do these mean for me in my life and in my situation? Because if you've got a giant in your life right now, and let's face it, right? We all go through hard times. We all find ourselves in, in seasons and moments of life where you've, you've got this giant, you've got this thing that you're trying to overcome, you've got this thing that you're trying to get past. I mean, for some of you today, it could be a struggling marriage. 
And it took a long time to get to this place, and so it's going to take some time. It's going to take some work to, to get to a better place. Maybe, maybe you've got some health issues going on right now. You're, you're struggling uh, physically. You, you've got a, a family member or a close friend that's suffering in some, some way. This world and just the circumstances of life can be like a giant, and, and oftentimes, you know, those circumstances, they want to crush you, and, and we want to find a way through, but we can't see a way through. Maybe there's an addiction in your life right now and 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 you maybe you see it but you're not willing to do the work maybe you can't see it but those that love you can see it and and you need to get help you need to get somebody that can walk alongside of you and and help you through these things I mean you could be struggling spiritually and if you've got some big questions you're trying to figure out trying to answer I mean those can be like a an imposing giant that that will prevent us from, from seeing anything else, from, from growing in our faith. Our, our giants come in all different shapes and sizes. But notice that David isn't focused on the size of Goliath. No, his, his faith and his eyes and his courage are found in the Lord. And he's not overwhelmed at the thought of what Goliath could do. His, his faith is grounded in God and what he is capable of doing. Verse 48, it says, as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line. What did David do? He ran towards him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. Verse 51, David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword, drew it from the sheath, and after he killed Goliath, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Typically in Gen Kids, we stop at verse 50, right? We just don't add verse 51 in there. We figure that's more of an adult discussion. But this is a classic, sticky sort of story. And there are so many lessons that we could draw from it. And if you've studied this before, and if you recall this from past experience, you know there are so many lessons about life and faith and fear and giants and how to overcome them. And, and it's so easy to look at a story like this and conclude, you know what, I need to be more like David. Like, what can I learn from David and apply to my life. And I'll just say this, each of those is legitimate, and there's nothing wrong with any of that. There's nothing wrong with considering any part of any of these. But consider this. Jenny and I were, were talking about something unrelated this past week. She was telling me about a Bible study she's been doing and what popular Bible teacher and writer Jen Wilkin says about the way we study and read and apply the Bible to our lives. Look at what she says about our personal Bible study. She says, you see, the Bible is not a book about self-discovery. It's a book about God-discovery. The Bible is God's declared intent to make himself known to us. And in learning about the character of God in Scripture, we will experience self-discovery, but it must not be the focus of our study. The focus must be God himself. What's her point? Her point is this, that if we're not careful, we'll turn the Bible 
into a self-help book of sorts. Like, yes, the Bible is there to teach us how to live, but it's so much more than that. And so here's a greater point, that there are incredible benefits to studying the Bible and studying passages like 1 Samuel chapter 17 and asking yourself first and foremost, what does this teach me about God? What does it teach me about the character of God? And as I think now about the character of God, what does that reveal to me about my life, my needs, and in our case, the intimidating giant that might be standing before me and my desperate need for faith and courage? And as I was studying then this passage this week, thinking about her words, I also came across the teaching by a pastor by the name of J.D. Creer, and I think uh, his teaching kind of gets to the heart of this type of discovery, this, this study of David and Goliath and seeing God first and foremost in it, because as he suggests, again, we often look at a story like David and Goliath, and we conclude, you know what, I've got a giant in my life like Goliath, and I need to be more like David so that I can be victorious, and so we'll conclude that David is the hero of this story, but a better conclusion is actually this, that God is the hero of the story. God is the hero, that the, this book, the, the Bible itself, is not a story about you or me or David or Goliath or anyone else like them. First and foremost, it's a book. It's a story about God. It's a story of his character and his faithfulness and his passionate love for you and for me. And to get even more specific then, Jesus is the the better and the greater David. And we can learn from David. There are so many great qualities about him, but guess what? He's not perfect. And if you read the rest of his story, he's going to fail miserably time and time again before he dies. Jesus isn't like that. Jesus, like David, though, he too was born in Bethlehem. And like David, he defeated an even greater giant than Goliath, that scaly serpent that Jerry talked about last week in Satan. And in the same way that David represented Israel on the battlefield, Jesus represented each of us when he came into this world and when he stood face to face with Satan on our behalf. And Jesus crushed Satan when he died on the cross and God rose him from the dead. And in doing so, he accomplished what David could never do, what we could never accomplish on our own. And because Jesus is our representative, that just means that we look to him for lessons on how to stand in the face of fear and our giants. And because Jesus is our representative, it means that salvation and forgiveness is available to each of us when we put our faith and trust in him. And that just leads to this then, that in Jesus, I find my hope and I find my confidence, and you do too. Faith in Jesus means that you and I, we have nothing to fear. We don't have to fear things like rejection. Like you don't have to be afraid of what others think of you. You don't have to be afraid of your past or your weaknesses. It doesn't matter what others say about you when Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life. Faith in Jesus means that we don't have to fear things like failure. Like maybe your giant is something big that's coming up with your job or at work. Maybe your giant is the thought of another school year or another year on your campus. Maybe, maybe your marriage is struggling right now and you know you need to get help, but you're afraid to get that help that you need. Maybe there is an addiction in your life. Maybe you've got some wounds in your past and others have told you that professional help would help, but you're just afraid to revisit that part of your life and what could come from it. Maybe it's a fear of the future and uncertainty and things like pain and death. The gospel, which means good news, 
is that Jesus died and he rose from the dead and he has defeated once and for all the greater Goliath in Satan. And because Jesus lives, we live. And when we live in Jesus, when we put our faith and hope in Jesus, we have nothing to fear, which just means this finally, that real courage is found in Jesus Christ. Real courage is found through Jesus. Jesus' victory for you and me means that we live, we can live with a greater calling and a greater purpose in this world, that we can find our strength and courage in Jesus and live for him and live by him. What did David say? He said, I come to you, Goliath, in the name of the Lord Almighty. And just as Jesus did when he faced his tempter, Satan, in the wilderness, he found all of his strength and all of his courage through his Father in heaven. You can do the same. We can find the courage and the faith and the strength that we need through God and through a relationship with Him. And so no matter what it is for you right now, no matter what you're going through, no matter what title, name, or label you would put on your giant, our courage, our strength, and our hope comes through one person, our hero, and His name is Jesus Christ. And it's true, like, Jesus' victory for us doesn't mean everything goes the way that I want it to here on this earth. Uh, It doesn't mean that you and I, that we won't struggle with things like fear, that we won't ever face any obstacles of our own. But what it does mean is that when I see a giant at work in my life, I can stand and I can face that giant And the same way David did, and with his words, the battle belongs to the Lord. And my God will fight for me, and he will fight for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for how you love us. We we can't begin to comprehend the lengths of your love your love for every person here today. And you are an omniscient God. You are an all-knowing God, which means you know the details. You know the circumstances. You know what we face. You know what brings us great fear. You know where we're lacking and where we need things like courage and more faith. And you have so much grace. It never ends. Give us faith to believe in you today. Give us eyes to see you. Faith like Jesus to find our hope and confidence in him. Would you give us the courage that we need to keep trusting, to keep believing you for everything that we need. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.